I'm Trevor Cummings, and these are my Thoughts on Money. Hello, and welcome to the Thoughts on Money podcast, where we like to call it Tom. I'm Trevor Cummings, your host of the podcast and your author of the Thoughts on Money blog. And I'm here with my good friend and dear colleague, Mr. Sean Latimer. Good morning. He always smiles when I, when I intro because he's like, what is he going to say? Yeah, I never know. You switch it up most times. I think you got it down to a, a rhythm now. Yeah, it's some, some sort of memory. I do it in my sleep. Uh, what are we going to start off with today? What do you want to talk about? Uh, finance stuff. Okay. You know, the basics. You want to talk about basketball? No. No, I'm feeling, I'm having a life moment where I'm feeling old and I thought I threw out my back playing basketball this morning, but nope. It's luckily a... Uh, what do they call it? Soft tissue injury. <laughs> yeah. I will bring this has nothing to do with the article, but one pet peeve for me at basketball, because everyone's somewhat around the same age or whatever, you know, there, there's some variation, but I hate when somebody comes in like the wounded bird, like, oh, this is messed up. And then you're like, okay, you're like kind of soft on defense. And then they blow by yeah. you or they hit a three point shot and you're like, I thought you fractured your wrist or <laughs> I thought you had a back ailment. It doesn't feel or look like that. Yeah, this this was the opposite. This was I tried to act like everything was fine. But then when I couldn't move or run, I realized I probably shouldn't play another game. And <laughs> it was a sad moment, but I'll be okay. Yeah, we invited Sean to play a second game. And he's like, okay. And I'm like, can you move? He's like, no, but I'll play if you need me. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> They're like, you're off, you're we, off the team. <laughs> we need somebody that can move. Uh, I wrote an article today called Too Good to Be True. And uh, I hearkened back to, I wonder if this created some nostalgia for you, uh, but I really wanted to look at, man, what was it like through the lens of a brand new advisor? It definitely hits home because uh, I remember pretty vividly uh, the last company we worked for worked with a lot of large institutions and banks, and they would create these uh, structured notes that were, uh, they would say they're guaranteed uh, as safe as CDs. But they're market linked, so you get upside, no downside. And I remember I was like, wow, this is amazing. Why doesn't everyone just buy these? And you commit your money for five, six, seven years. And I remember looking with a couple other newer advisors, and they're like, this is great. We're all like, this is fantastic. And then there was like this little alarm in the back of my head, like, wait a minute. If it's so great, why why do we have to like sell it? And I think they uh, paid like a pretty high commissions to sell these things to, to people and i was like well wait if they're so great they wouldn't like people would be they'd be sought after we wouldn't have to sell them and then i had this kind of like sobering feeling where i'm like wait no there i'm not understanding something and I, i'm glad you rewrote this article now as a mature advisor you kind of have this language you use where hey there's a a certain type of products that are more sold than bought yeah yeah, you know, it's interesting. Anytime I get that same feeling where this is too good to be true, and maybe this will be to my detriment one day, but I, I almost discount it right away. Like, ah, nope. Because I feel like after you've been doing this for a while, new things don't come across your desk too often. So if it's something uh, we talk about a lot, shiny objects, if it's sexy, if it's new, there, if it seems good to, too good to be true, it probably is. And so I have to be really convinced going into it, which I, I think that... Um, some may say that you're stubborn and you're not open-minded, but I think it's actually a benefit in our profession because uh, you, you're not going to be fooled and you really need to be convinced, especially when you're committing client money to it. I'm scared to say this quote from my friend because I think you could beat it up. I don't think it's totally uh, true. Let's hear it. Uh, but he always used to say, if it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. 
Uh, and it was just this idea when you when you look at industries like finance, right, where there's been a ton of brain power pressed into something, it would probably be very difficult to stumble upon some world-changing new type of thing that no other investor has ever seen. Now, what I'm not saying there is that somebody couldn't come across some venture capitalist opportunity where huge to the upside, but from like a strategic standpoint, if it's in financial products, I think you always need to beat it up a little bit. And I concluded the article saying, that's my bent. That's how I'm wired. Like, if you're a friend of mine, you know that I can be really difficult to collaborate with at times. But I do like that feature in my personality when it comes to managing my own finances and also advising others. Yeah, and I I think it does stop you from going down those paths of, uh, you know, easy money or quick uh, get rich quick because there there are many times where I've had clients come up and think, oh, I have a friend or a cousin and they, they bought this real estate thing and they pretty much paint this picture that there's no downside. And I have to just pause and say, well, wait, wait a minute. Like, let's talk through the worst case scenario. And as you talk through it with them, they realize that there is always a risk in most investments. And if there isn't, then the expected return is going to be less. So Yeah, there's probably trigger words for you, like easy money or guaranteed or this can't fail. And you're like, woo, woo, yeah. woo. So I'll go backwards a little bit. What Sean and I are talking about is that there are these things called structured products. Now, I didn't even get into the article of what they are, but they're typically made of derivatives. Uh, you're you're going to have to simplify the yeah, explanation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm not even going to go into the, the weeds because it's just not worth it on the podcast. But basically what it is is you're buying an investment product for a stated period of time, like you said, five years, seven years. Usually it's a note, meaning it's it's debt issued by the bank. And then it has some structured outcome, right? That's It's actually a narrative. It's, it's easy for you to understand. So it would be something like, hey, if you invest in this product, it'll produce the return of the S&P 500 with these additional benefits and features. Mm. And like the one I made up that's hypothetical in the article, it is hypothetical, but I bet you could probably find something out there that matches what we described. And what it was is, hey, here's a structured product. Uh, it is going to give you the return of the S&P 500. Again, this is my make-believe structured product. I'm going to say that 20 times, hypothetical, make-believe, but it will generate the return of the S&P 500. And for any down years, it'll just change it to zero. So there's no downside. So if the market went down 30% one year, you chalk up a 0% return for that year. You're going to trade something for that, right? Right. So they're going to give you a haircut on the upside meaning the maximum you could participate on the upside is 8%. So what I wanted the reader to do is imagine if you're a fresh pair of eyes, whether you're an investor or an advisor, and you start to go down the path of like, wait a tick. I think the stock market, I don't know, but I think it returns somewhere in the zip code of 8% on average. So you're telling me I can get that full 8 on the upside, and then I never have to endure 2008, a March of 2020, a dot-com crisis, that seems like, sign me up, I'll take two. Well, the funny part is, too, is uh, that 8%, if you look at what equity averages are, they're right around that range. You know, over the past 50 years, I think it's averaged like 9.7%. But we've talked about this before, that there's only been, I think, one year that it actually was up that number, 9% or so. Most of the time, and you're going to get into this right now, most of the time it's, you know, up 18, down 7, up 22, down 10, 
or up three, it's never really going to be that average. And so I think that math is important in this example. Yeah, and it makes us, in the language of finance, have to go a little deeper to understand what words mean. So we always use the word volatility, but it is a mathematic measurement. And the math there is called a standard deviation. How far does something deviate, on average, from its average return? I'll say it again. How, How wide is the dispersion of outcomes compared to what the average is? Now, we fear that. We don't like it, but we don't realize that it it hits both ways, Mm -hmm. right? We hate volatility to the downside, but it is, and you have to go to the article and see the charts. It is the volatility to the upside that really drives long-term wealth accumulation. Yeah, because if you miss um, a handful of the best days of the year, isn't that a majority of the total return? Yeah, what you're saying is that your returns are going to be lumpy. So- What I highlighted is I basically took from 1970 to 2022 and showed here's the return of the S&P 500, like really easy chart on there. Then I did for our fictitious, make-believe, hypothetical structured product, I said, hey, let's highlight every year the returns were greater than 8%, and let's highlight every year returns were negative. Because in this little pitch we're doing, right, you have to make a trade. You're trading some of the upside, we called it a haircut, for avoiding the downside. Now, when you see the chart, you'll see that I highlighted the above 8% in green and the below 0% or negative returns in in red, right? The first thing you should notice, there's a lot more green highlights than red highlights. So you start to get an idea, huh, maybe I am giving up a lot for protecting the downside. I'm smiling because I'm looking at this chart and I'm just thinking about how unfortunate it is to be an investor sometimes when it's almost impossible not to get emotional about your own money. And so in 2008, if you saw your portfolio, if you're invested in, uh, let's just pretend in our hypothetical world, you're 100% equities, and you saw your portfolio go down almost 40%, I think that would spook anyone. And then they make a bad decision the worst possible time. And then the next year, the market's up 23% and you missed out. Then the next year, it's up 12%. And you say, all right, now I feel better. I'm going to get back into the market. I want to get some of these returns. And then the next year's flat. And I I, I could just see how that pattern is uh, is tough to be an investor. So uh, one thing you said earlier, too, and uh, I don't know if this is the right time to bring it up, but you you mentioned that there's a lot of brain power and, and money in the world of finance, right? Well, you reference it later in your article, but... There's also a lot of studying of the human behavior when it comes to finance. So unfortunately, a lot of that money is is going towards marketing as well. And so I know that there's people right now in a think tank that are saying, hey, people want to buy products that do this, you know, floor, ceiling, and they're willing to give up the top line return of your hypothetical situation to get that protection on the downside because it'll make them feel better. And they're able to do the math and figure out, oh, we're going to be able to make money on this hand over fist if we sell X amount of it. Yeah, and you're kind of diving into this idea of behavioral economics, Yeah, right? Uh, Kahneman and Tversky, uh, I think Tversky had passed away by the time this happened, but Kahneman, I believe, got a Nobel Prize in economics for their study on behavioral economics. And one of the well-known pieces out of that research was that from a psychological standpoint, that losses hurt twice as much 
as, I don't know what you're going to call the opposite, the joy of gains, right? So the pain of loss impacts you so much more than the pleasure of gains. And when you start to look at that, then you're right. You're like, man, there's some marketing team out there that wants to create a product that satiates your appetite for your own fears. And one of the things I try to get across in the article, let me help you on what it is to be a mature investor. It's to get the realization that that volatility to the upside has huge benefits. And you can't have that without enduring sometimes, which is rare. Like my red highlights from 19, what is that, 53 years? Mm -hmm. There's not a ton of them, right? There's a few freckles on our chart, but there's a whole lot more of the upside that's highlighted there. Yeah, and I know we talk about sports too much on our uh, personal finance podcast, but it is true. I mean, I think most people remember their favorite sports team, you know, losing the championship game or the last play of the game much more than, you know, that season where they had 60 or 70 wins or, or whatever it might be. I think it just uh, it hits home a lot more, and you remember the losses, uh, and especially when you're talking about your money. Yeah, I mean, there's been even research, if we're on sports, right, about basketball, of is there such a thing as a hot streak? Uh, like, could they statistically prove that somebody's more likely to make the next shot once they've had some sort of consecutive shots, right? And there's controversy there. I, I'm not going to get into it. But somebody who's a basketball fan, I can tell you there's this grit from somebody like, rest in peace, Kobe Bryant, where people used to say, short-term memory loss. Mm-hmm. He could miss 10 in a row, doesn't care, right? He's going to come back, take that shot just as if it was the first yeah. shot. So, um I'm kind of the opposite, right? If I'm having a bad day in basketball, I'm like scared to shoot because I'm like, (laughs) I'm losing confidence, right? Uh, So that is very similar to investors. What you drew attention to in 2008, man, those battle scars uh, create some level of PTSD that make investors very leery to see that happen to their portfolio again, even though the greatest pain came from the reactionary decision more than the experience. It's it's true. You know, on the, uh, last week we were talking about um, what do we say when, when clients are like, hey, these treasuries are looking really attractive right now. I'm kind of spooked about markets. Why don't we just buy this for now and see how things work? And we were talking about like, how, how do we respond to that or what do we say? And uh, I probably saw the best response uh, I, I've ever seen today from our founder, David Bonson. And I, I won't get into too much detail, but uh, it was a similar, similar uh, scenario and his response was, why? And I was like, oh, that's such a good response. Because I, I, know that, I know what the person is saying without saying it. They're saying, I'm just scared of markets and I don't want to see this money go down in the next six months. But realistically, who knows what's going to happen? And uh, I think all this kind of boils down to behavioral finance. And on that thread of behavioral finance, right, is you kind of want to respond to somebody like, there's never going to be a time that you're not spooked. And if there is a time that you're not spooked, you should buy treasuries. Yeah, maybe that's what yeah, you should. <laughs> because the euphoria is going to be going through the roof, right? It's this like constant peak and trough, these waves of uh, fear and euphoria going back and forth. And any time that you do feel comfortable, that's the time you should be looking around. And, and that's the time you maybe should have a little bit of fear. Yeah, that's true. But name of the article is too good to be true because – we now got this concept on this hypothetical structured product we've created in our hypothetical world that's absolutely make-believe. 
we look at what do the returns actually look like going back from 1970. And one reason it's make-believe is that there's nobody out there selling a 53-year structured product, right? Yeah. But we wanted to exaggerate the difference to see what do the compounding returns look like. So when we ran that for the structured product, when you lop off returns to be maximized at 8%, you turn all the negative returns into zero, you ended up compounding annual growth rate at somewhere around 5%. Over that same time period, the market did over 10%. So I think, again, at face value, you're like, ah, I only got half of the return. But then you forget how compounding works. You didn't only get half the return because we talked about 5% over 53 years versus 10% over 53 years. $100,000 in the 5% scenario turned into $1.3 million. $100,000 turned into $20 million at the higher rate of return of 10.43%. That should be shocking. That is. That is a gigantic difference. And it kind of proves to this idea that that volatility to the upside is what drives wealth accumulation. And I said this in the article. I was surprised the first time I ran this math. And I've done it a ton of times again. And, and, and writing it today, I was like, I got to check my numbers. Yeah, I remember this, the first time you did it, you sent it to me. You're like, is this, am I, am I, are we doing this right? And I'm like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and you have to go further. You can't even just look at rates of return. You have to convert that to what it does in dollars so you can see the compounding difference between the two. Yeah, earlier in the article, too, you said if we just did the eye test and we sent this to 10 of our friends and we said, hey, which would be better? They'd probably say, oh, they'd have to think about it, you know? Oh, maybe the, the cap, it would actually, no, it'd probably be better just to be fully invested. I can promise you, though, they wouldn't expect it to be that much better. I actually expect the opposite. I, I'm, I'm going to be real. Like when I was a new invest, a new advisor, I was like, that's probably better uh, because – but that's when my doubt started clicking. Yeah. Like, wait a tick. How, how can that be better? And all, all this is ran before fees. So I, I probably didn't do a good, good enough job in the article to say this. This wasn't like intended to be a criticism against structured products. Like that, That's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying here is – that there is going to be a million distractions in finance and there's going to be a million new, exciting, curb appeal, great ideas. But you need to understand like volatility is your friend. And I don't have a better way to say that. And I, I ended the article that I'm going to say that every week because that's what causes the most pain and that's what leads to the most bad decisions. And I'm glad you put the part in for the uh, the rebuttal because <clears throat> someone would say, oh, well, that 5% would be compared to what you would get in fixed income or cash or something like that. But I don't know if that's the best argument because at least in a lot of our portfolios, the cash or fixed income uh, portion is really treated for liquidity purposes. And if you own something like this, most of the time, the, the minimum amounts of time I've seen are like five or six years. And so it doesn't really scratch that itch. So then if you're locking something up for five or six years, you really want to compare it to maybe like an alternative investment or equity-like returns, and uh, it doesn't seem like it would stack up. Yeah, I think you're spot on. it. And I, I said that in the article too because I get that rebuttal. I respect that rebuttal that, hey, you shouldn't be comparing this to equity market returns. But you did exactly what I would do. Okay, what should we be comparing it to? And then somebody says fixed income, and they go, okay, cool. Now let's look at the cost, the liquidity profile. Like they, often there's not a very big secondary market uh, 
for these things. So mm-hmm. if you needed to exit, you can. Like there are, I've seen marketplaces out there, but the buyer knows they have an advantage. Yeah. Right. It's a very inefficient market, so they're going to want to offer you seventy cents on the dollar. Side note: I remember uh, working the prof- finance professional that bigger company worked for in the past, and uh, they actually talked about disruption in that market. That there's a lot of people that buy these products not re- not really understanding them. And then going to the secondary market and, like you said, selling them for 70, 80 cents on the dollar. And uh, there, there are definitely buyers out there that will take advantage of that. Yeah, I might be a buyer. You know yeah. what I mean? Because when you start to change the math, then you got to look under the hood again. Yeah. And that was kind of what I was trying to, to explain here is that a trade that looked really good on paper, you just needed to do a little arithmetic and understand what you were actually giving up. And I, I would say the biggest truth, and maybe this is too much on the math side, but when you start to look at like a bell curve on kind of how the distributions of returns look like, there is a tail on the left side that's painful and ugly, but it's rare. Like the positive returns, if you're a long-term investor, skew so much in your favor. And there's so much robustness, <laughs> if that's even a word, on the positive. And that's why we talk about so much that it's extremely rare in a diversified stock portfolio to have a 10-year return that's negative. It's happened, but it's rare. And it's actually never happened when you're measuring on the 20-year period. So you get this idea of skew in your favor, and then you're like, oh, volatility works both ways. And I actually need those upsides because you mentioned earlier, it's very rare for the market to give a return between 8 to 12%. That might be the average, but it's very rare for those numbers to actually hit. So when you look at this chart and I highlight in green, there's a lot of up 20%, some up 30%, up 18%. And those are the times that you're paying, right? So the reality, and I should have put this in the article, what you're paying for, right? The opportunity cost that you're willing to pay is you're paying because you want to transfer the risk to somebody else. And there's a cost to do that. Yeah. And for the listeners, if you if you've purchased one of these in the past and you're kind of like having buyer's remorse or you have, don't don't feel bad. Don't beat yourself up. We we do this all day, every day, and it even took us a couple glances to realize like, oh wait a minute, this this isn't the best thing to to buy. Uh, it, it, it's easy for us to say in hindsight how obvious it was, right? But um, when we were starting our careers, it looked pretty attractive. So uh, don't beat yourself up. I still do it. I'll, somebody will present something to me, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. And I'm like, I'll beat it up. And then I go, Brian Zaitel, Sean Latimer, and I give you guys a copy. I'm like, what am I missing here? And then we start to understand, and it's different every time. Like sometimes it's regulatory risk. Sometimes it's mm. illiquidity. Uh, sometimes it's uh, the fact that there's not a secondary market. Sometimes it's the underlying business, right? Will that business that's promised you X be around? You know, and maybe this isn't a fair statement because I, I, I know very little about the auto industry, but as a buyer, I'm hesitant to buy a, a, an electric vehicle. I have an electric vehicle. Um, I drive a Tesla. I have some level of confidence because there's a lot of places that can fix my car. If it's a newer company, right. I would have some level of concern that I need to factor in regardless of how quality this vehicle is, will there be someone around to fix it? Uh, and that's an important piece because uh, you have a Tesla as well, and you know that the, it's not rare for you to go on the app and request yeah. something and, and have them fix it or they come out and do it. Like that feature of customer service and the fact that they're around, it's helpful because you 
can't take your vehicle into any auto mechanic. Yeah, but you know, 10 years ago, though, I'm sure buyers were kind of thinking the same thing, like, well, if in a year or two, this isn't around, or I can't charge it, you know, that that is a concern. Yeah, and I, we did a podcast a very long time ago, but we had some folks from our alternatives team kind of in here. And I was, I always remember, because I was surprised, I actually didn't think about that. But one of the things that they said when they're going through their vetting process on alternatives, that they want to deal with an established, large company that has institutional level uh, amount of people, quality of work, compliance, all these things, because a really good strategy with not that same business behind it introduces a new risk that people often don't think about. Yeah. And if, and let's say most of the time investment shops have multiple strategies. Well, if it's smaller and newer and one of them doesn't do well or goes belly up, it could put the whole company at risk. Or if yeah. it's a large institution, they normally have some sort of backdrop. And even on this explanation we're doing today on structured products, some people forget, and, and they don't, they're not aware of this, is it'll run them you realize this is a note. So there's creditor risk, right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, what do you mean? It's just a defined outcome that if if this happens, this happens. Yes, but it is issued by this bank. So if anything happened to that bank, there's another feature of risk that you have to calculate. Then you look down and you realize you've never heard of that bank before. And you're like, oh, wait, maybe I should think about this. Yeah. So uh, the guarantee is only as good as the guarantor. That's right. So I think we're pretty good there. Uh, I think the article was appropriately titled, If Something Seems Too Good to Be True, there's a good chance that it's too good to be true. And in reality, Sean jokes about it, but there's not a lot of things to talk about on this podcast or in these articles because the same few truths need to be presented in new ways to really solidify um, how you frame the world of personal finance. Yeah. And I hope we get comments on this one too. If you've worked in the industry or if you've come across these and, and we got something wrong or there's something we're missing, please send it to us. We, we'd love to answer a question or address it. And uh, I think it'll help make us better. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and I'll reiterate it. This is not a criticism on a financial product. I could do that. We could have podcasts. Like I have a lot of things I would love to debate about. We could just go and look up like a handful of actual ones and then beat them up. But. Yeah. yeah, not not our intent. Really, it is here is that um, don't let your eyes deceive you, right? Sometimes you'll read something, you'll understand something, and you think it's a perfect solution. And you need to understand how does this fit into my overall financial plan. And I touched on it in the article is I said, sometimes the pitch is greater than the punch. And a lot of the time for this industry, these products are more sold than bought. And there is some place to look at, hey, follow the money follow the compensation, and things of that nature. So uh, again, we value this idea of philosophy and conviction. We believe that comes from experience and competency. So um, yeah, it's always this mentality, and this is how Trevor's wired, of like buyers beware. Uh, But that's why we're here. We're here to remind you of what we think these kind of important nuggets of wisdom are in finance, how you apply them, and the million things that are coming your way, and kind of how to decipher between um, the, the noise and the signal. So we'll wrap it up there. We'll ask that you rate the podcast five stars or preferred. All comments are welcome. Sean mentioned that you can reach out to us anytime. It's very easy email address, tom, T-O-M, at thebonsagroup.com. You can address that to Trevor or Sean. And then, of course, we will be back next week with more of our Thoughts on Money. money.
The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.